Hi there and welcome to the Storymakers Institute, your front row pass to the world's most intriguing storytellers. And today I've got some news. We're going weekly. Yes, new episodes arriving of the podcast every week where you get to meet the people behind the stories that shape our worlds. You never know who's going to turn up next, but what I can tell you is you get inspiration on demand and unlimited access on Substack. If you're not a paid subscriber, you're only getting half the story. You can unlock full episodes of the Storymakers Institute with full-length episodes available only to paid subscribers. Head to our website, thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com, fill in your details and become a paid subscriber today. Well, in recent years, it feels like the public square has descended at least on some level into crosstalk, siloed chatter and attempts at manipulating the masses through downright lies. Maybe it's always been like that to some level, but it does feel somewhat heightened now. And there stoking the fire are the institutions and the platforms clocking up eyeball blinks for a dollar or a dong. The more sensational, the more outrageous, the better. And today I'm going to be joined by the one and only Josh Sepps. For those in Sydney, Australia, you'll know him as your weekdays afternoons presenter on ABC Sydney. He's also a professional fellow at UTS and host of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, which you can subscribe to also on Substack. And in this conversation, Josh and I dive into the so-called trappings of modernity to explore how we got here, what stories prop up the age of outrage and what Josh is doing to counterbalance it. And to begin this conversation, I asked Josh what his podcast is all about. I call the show a safe space for dangerous ideas, uh, intentionally to problematize or complicate the idea of a safe space, because I don't really think that safe spaces, the way that they're currently, the way that term is currently used, are uh, provide any safety in the long run. I mean, I think the greatest safety in the long run is by people living in a robust rambunctious democracy, a small L liberal uh, demos in which people can be heard and we can all grope our way towards a common understanding by exchanging controversial and provocative ideas with each other and trying to figure out what's true. There is, I think, a lot of smugness at the moment uh, around and and sort of self-certainty that we've figured out what is just and what is right and that anybody who's on the wrong side of what we regard as being the correct way of thinking about things is prima facie bad. And I guess I'm just more epistemologically humble and curious and not so certain that we've got everything figured out. So what sort of issues are we talking about here? All of the all of the subjects around the kind of tripwire culture war issues uh, that so energize people, uh, whether that's Indigenous rights and welcomes to country and the voice referendum, whether it's something to do with gender and sex equality and uh, representation of women on, uh, you know, uh, in CEO boardrooms or in parliament, whether it's norms around uh, gender and transgenderism and paediatric uh, transgender care and pronouns, uh, you know, you can, you name it, whether it's about the climate crisis. There are a number of areas where floating a particular point of view just as a way of trying to explore it and interrogate it and prod it and understand it, even if ultimately to reject it, even the countenancing of the point of view in the first place immediately puts you on one side or another of a purity test of a, of a line in the sand. And I think that's unhealthy. I mean, some people will find it odd that I'm sort of framing 
this current moment as a moment when there is too little disagreement because people can point to the hostility of social media and the partisanship of our age and say, what are you talking about? We live in an incredibly divided time and we live in a time where there is too much disagreement and if only we could be more conciliatory towards one another, things would be better. Um, And I think that's to some extent a misunderstanding of what kind of disagreement I'm talking about. I, I mean, I'm talking about a generosity of spirit towards other people's ideas Uh, a belief that the way you get towards the best ideas is by groping towards them in a kind of uh, dance of of opposing views where you push back on people and and try to enhance their views by encouraging them to be more robust and and putting up the best opposition to them that you can and playing playing devil's advocate and playing around in an intellectual sandpit there's not a lot of that going on. There's not a lot of good faith argument. There's not a lot of taking the most generous possible interpretation of your opponent's arguments rather than demonizing them. So yes, there's a ton of hostility. Yes, there's a ton of trolling. Yes, there's a ton of name calling. But I think all of that is sort of the flip side of the fact that we're losing the ability to have really fair income conversations about some of the most important things because we're becoming more and more tribal. Uh, and I think social media has a lot to do with that. I think the partisanship of of politics and the meat and the, the the sort of failure of the media to um, break out of institutional narratives about things is getting worse. I think the pandemic was harmful to the way that we talk openly and honestly uh, about things. It's got a number of factors, but I would like to see, and I do my best to <laughs> encourage to usher in uh, an era of greater. Uh, exploratory conversations about anything and everything without so much regard for whether or not we're going to tread on taboos or someone's going to claim to be offended by it. I don't really care if people are offended by it as long as the conversation is constructive and in good faith. Can you see where we fell into all of this so far as the, you know, is there a, is there a clear kind of timeline of events that have led us to this point so far as the the conversations that are allowed to have in the public square? Well, I don't think you can underestimate the role of social media. So, I mean, it's really the past 10 or 15 years since social media became mobile uh, and we started spending all our time distracting ourselves, watching other people argue on our phones that has has toxified the, the discourse, I think. And that's then had knock-on ramifications for the way the rest of the media operates, for the clickbait incentives, for all of the other things that derange our information sphere. Um, I think the I think you know the invention of the algorithm the invention of the 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 monetization of attention the fact that an idea on social media isn't prioritized for being nuanced because nobody nobody engages with nuance I mean the the whole business model of Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and TikTok is that if you like comment share stay on any video for long enough or any post for long enough, that counts as a win for the social media company. Uh, Same on YouTube. So the incentives are all to, you know, what is it that gets us to engage? It's either things that reinforce what we already believe so that we punch the air and say, yes, right on, or it's things that demonize uh, people who we we disagree with and caricature ideas that we already disagree with so that we can say, you see how fucking stupid these people are? So Something that tries to bridge, to bridge, to bring us together and to to bridge different ideas, um, is unlikely to get you fired up enough to comment on it, share it, or like it. And that 
reliably incentivizes. I mean, it's an extremification machine. It's a caricaturization machine. It's a it's a pandering machine. And I, I you know, I don't think we were able to predict it, but I think it's clear in hindsight that uh, you know, essentially, creating an information environment where all of the things that we talk about get pre-chewed up by random people and then the most spitty and volatile and vomitous and bile-filled examples of that pre-masticated information get prioritized to the top of your feed, the idea that that's the way that we're consuming information is is insane. If I was an alien coming from another planet to here and you were to describe that back to me as you've described it back then, that sounds pretty insane. It does. <laughs> you know, when you think about it. It does. And yet this is the reality that we find ourselves in. So as a broadcaster, as someone who is, as I am as well, on a public broadcaster where, you know, there is uh, a whole range of considerations that are put in place uh, ahead of you turning on the microphone and having to weigh up those considerations, how does that sort of sit within the context of you as a broadcaster in, a, in an organisational context as opposed to someone just having free reign on the internet and doing whatever and saying whatever they like. It's a very different uh, kind of playing space in a way. It is. I mean, it's a challenge on multiple levels. It's a challenge because uh, I would rather not lose my job due to what I'm sure will happen at some stage, which is a concerted campaign to try to take something that I've said out of context and spin me as... Uh, as an evil person because I'm floating ideas that I think are better being aired than uh, allowing them to fester. But it's also a challenge for the public broadcaster itself and for the media more generally, and that's the more important challenge that I'm more committed to and more concerned about. I mean, I love the ABC and I want public broadcasting to be credible and uh, and to and for people to believe that it is it is operating without fear or favour. And there can be a tendency to just avoid, I mean, there is a a large, a strong institutional incentive to avoid touching hot button issues and not have to pay the tax, which is spending hours responding to complaints, trying to explain yourself to people who have no interest in giving you a fair hearing and are just trying to to demonize you because they regard you as the enemy because you you triggered some cultural tripwire. there is a there there is a cost imposed on anybody who takes a divergent view. Not a cost cost imposed by the ABC. A cost imposed by people who really are not that interested in uh, a big, broad uh, conversation or or a, an, an open, free debate, or not that interested in free speech and smaller liberalism in general. Who are interested in their vision of what is right and their uh, certainty in the fact that they're on the right side of history and are trying to raise the cost of talking in ways that they don't agree with. Um, this is a fascistic sort of impulse. It's, um, it's always been there on the right. I'm not a, I'm not a right-wing person who goes around talking about cancel, uh, you know, cancel culture being uh, the, the domain exclusively of crazy wokesters. Uh, you know, McCarthyism came from the right. Uh, you know, censoriousness uh, has a long, an honourable tradition on the right, I say uh, facetiously. Um, you know, religious conservatives have been uh, censorious since day one. It's just that traditionally we associated the broad left with a more permissive attitude towards ideas and a, and a greater interest in the exchange of ideas. And what's happened in the past decade or so is that the left has become at least as censorious as the the right, and at least as as certain in its own um, 
uh, in the purity of its own ideas about social justice as the old right was in the purity of its ideas about religious sanctity or uh, anti-communism or whatever it might be. So the challenge, I think, for a place like the ABC and for other uh, reputable news organisations is to be able to grapple with some of these issues in ways that will reliably piss off that puritanical uh, hysterical fringe uh, wherever it may lie on the political spectrum. Uh, but uh, to cop that and to be seen by the reasonable m- centre of middle Australia as as playing it fair. Do you see the agitations or the moral righteousness coming naturally from simply a new generation of people rising through life? Uh, or is it just simply across the political landscape or is there something else that's going on? It's definitely generational, but I don't think it's inevitable. I don't think it's like, you know, I, I, I the last thing I want to be is, you know, uh, a, a white guy approaching middle age who's who's, uh, ra- who's shaking his fist at young kids these days for being too progressive. And back in my day, things were so much more sensible and we were, you know, that is such a cliche. Uh, I don't want to be that yeah. guy. That's why I asked uh, the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 I'm not. I mean, I'm not that guy. Uh, it, and we, one can tell that I'm not that guy because I, I always try to use the principles of liberalism and social justice in guiding my thinking. So, young people, it is true, have always seen the hypocrisy of their elders and have tried to push forward the vanguard of what is morally acceptable. And it's a great thing that they do. And I did that as well when I was at university and I was a troublemaker. (laughs) And, you know, thank goodness the norms of the 1950s uh, or 1970s, let alone 1920s, are now in our past. And you can't go into an office and slap a female co-worker on the bum and say she looks great, toots. And, you know, you can't use the N-word and you can't demean minorities. These are all fabulous things. And yet there is now a phenomenon that young people have soaked up, I think, largely initially through academia, through universities, and now increasingly through the workplace and through the corporatization of wokeness and social justice and the timidity of uh, of corporations and CEOs in the face of social media pylons that has actually distracted uh, some of these activists and some of these people who are deeply concerned about these issues from what really should be the guiding light on the hill, which should be the ideals of a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King Jr. or a Nelson Mandela. And anytime I wonder whether or not I'm just a crotchety, (laughs) aging male shaking his fist at young kids these days, I step back and I think, well, okay, on whose side would Gandhi and Mandela and Martin Luther King be? Just make sure I'm on their side. If I'm on their side, then I'm doing okay. And if young people seem to be more tolerant and more open-minded and more inclusive and more generous, then that's the moment at which I'll step back and say, okay, the young people have got it right. But at the moment, this particular fad for uh, hysterical censoriousness towards people you disagree with is not something that would have been ever endorsed by Mandela, who got into power and encouraged all of his former opponents to join him and to remain in government and wanted to work with the racists who had incarcerated him. The current obsession for identifying ourselves as members of identity groups and obsessing over whether or not we are, we 
are queer or uh, you know what race we are. Uh, you know, dialing up the attention that we pay to people's identities, uh, and and downplaying or disregarding the universalist mission to treat each other equally, regardless of our skin color or gender or sexuality. Uh, th- that trend is not something that Martin Luther King was espousing. He was a universalist. I mean, he really, he really did believe that you should judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. So, uh, yeah, it's true that younger generations always have different ideas from their elders, but sometimes younger generations are wrong about some things as well. There's certainly a cyclic thing. There's a universality that I think of the human experience, but then there's also the other view, which is saying we're all individuals and we all have our own unique experiences and and lived experience, if you want to kind of use a term that gets sort of floated around, and that's unique and special and different and and that the, the kind of culmination of all the parts makes up that uh, that individual and um, and... So there's kind of two worldviews here, one which kind of arose from those greats of the last century and now this one. Yeah, I, I mean, yes, it's interesting that the subjective experience of one's life is is currently lauded over reason or data in many arenas. I mean, I recently did an interview uh, on my ABC show with Lucinda Holdforth, who's, uh, who's a brilliant woman who has a, a new... Uh, a little book published by uh, Monash University Press uh, called Virtues in the 20th, 21st Century or 21st Century Virtues. And she was a speechwriter for Kim Beasley. She worked in the Hawke and Keating governments. And it's basically a broadside against the sort of subjectification of our outlooks that my lived truth is supreme, that the virtues of today are virtues of authenticity and sharing and self-care. And she sort of contrasts this with the virtues of ancient Rome or other civilizations that have flourished, where the focus was much more on um, uh, integrity, on hard work, on it, it wasn't, it, they weren't self-referential virtues, in other words. And so, yes, there is a, a kind of a, a self-absorption at the moment that we're elevating to to uh, the status of virtue, um, the idea that, you know, I mean, uh, for example, uh, you know, even just what, what I've already said in this interview, touching on transgender issues, there'll be a certain cohort of people who would say, well, how can two cisgendered people talk about transgender issues? You wouldn't know what it's like to be trans. And certainly if we were to touch race, then, you know, what are two white people doing talking about race? They have no understanding of what the lived experience of being a person of color is, which is absolutely true. And if we were opining about what it's like to live as a person of color or a transgender person, then we would have no standing to do so. And it wouldn't make any sense for us to (laughs) have that conversation. Well, exactly. Why would we even have that conversation? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I just want to make the distinction that that what's, what's, generally happening is that someone is trying to deprive the other person of standing in talking about something which which we all have a stake in by saying that they don't belong to the identity group or have the lived experience of that identity group. I just think that's a foul move. I don't think that's permissible. Uh, it doesn't have any intellectual rigor behind it. You know, when we're talking, for example, about I don't know the allocation of federal dollars towards resolving indigenous poverty, it actually doesn't matter whether or not you're indigenous. Uh, you know, if we're talking about Australia's relationship, what Australia's foreign policy should be towards Bangladesh, 
it doesn't actually matter whether or not you're a Bangladeshi. You need to be informed about Bangladesh, but some of the most informed people in Australia about Bangladesh and the strategic relationship between Australia and Bangladesh are not going to be Bangladeshis, I mean, just by default. And similarly, if I'm talking on my radio show and I need to talk to a world-leading expert in endometriosis, that person may or may not be a female. They may or may not have endometriosis, but they may be a world expert in endometriosis. So, you know, if we're going to curtail all of our conversations because we have to have a lived experience or like my subjective personal pain has to be brought to the table, well, that's very good if we're having a conversation about your personal pain. But frankly, it's irrelevant if we're having a conversation about policy, about data, about reason. And about the broader the broader issues, I suppose. There's a lot of conversation that can be framed through this lens of, of a culture war. Do you feel like that by even calling it those things that you're fueling the, f- the flames of the, the fire that continues to, to bubble on? Like, at what point do you just sort of stop talking about it and does it just go away? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I, uh, I'm pretty mindful of not talking it up. Uh, I don't think it goes away by not addressing it, but I do agree with you that if you spend all of your time, uh, it depends how you're doing it, basically. I mean, if you're talking about the phenomenon of people being divided and then you're having conversations that seek to undivide people, then I think that's constructive. But if you're talking about how divided people are and then you're launching into a broadside about how silly the other side is for being so divisive, then you're the problem. Yeah, that's the modus operandus of the the right wingers who spend all of their time talking about how crazy woke people are, and they cherry pick tiny examples of people on the left being crazy in just the same way that the left will cherry pick examples of you know I don't know the right being Nazi adjacent or something like that, and uh, you know they'll they'll score a few cheap shots and they'll win the argument, but they're actually contributing to the division. So uh, yes, I'm cautious about how I talk about. The, the culture war, but I don't spend a lot of time talking about the culture war and then launching into tirades about how silly one side is or or another side. I tend to talk about it in the context of let's all try to be a little bit more reasonable with one another. And I also think that someone like a Trump, for instance, and whilst that's a whole other topic, which we don't have time for, but I, I almost think that kind of the perfect anecdote for people like that is just to ignore them. And so if they're not actually getting traction on these ideas, then they're going to just disappear, at least out of your world, mm. and maybe that's enough, you know? Do you have to yeah, always dive in with those issues? I mean, that's right. And I mean, I think social media is a real problem there because it makes it harder to ignore people like that because the algorithms elevate them. And I do think we would all be a lot healthier if we not only got off social media, but also focused a lot more on things that are within our sphere of control rather than on big political issues. You know, I think I think it was healthier a generation or two ago where you didn't really think terribly much about global and national issues. Um, now, there's a caveat to add here that, of course, there are big global issues that do need our attention. I mean, we need to be working on the on climate chaos. You know, we need to be working on artificial intelligence and things like that. Um, but we don't need to spend all of our days uh, scoring shots against people who disagree with us on social media about those issues. You know, in, in, in some ways, the most reliable way to make yourself unhappy is to focus on big things outside your control. And the most reliable way to make your ha- yourself happy is to focus on things that are within your sphere of control 
that are sort of immediate to you. There's kind of a, a slogan online, which is whenever anyone's getting too online, they say, go out and touch the grass, you know, touch some grass. Touch you know, some touch grass, a tree. touch a tree. Touch some grass, baby. Uh, and yeah, I think we could all, we could all touch a bit more grass and even more, more. Yeah, ignore the, ignore the chaos a bit more. I love it. Hey, I know you have to run soon, but I wanted to just uh, check in to see if you want to stick around and answer some questions for our paid subscribers. Of course, please. Because I want to talk about some fixes to all of this. Well, that's it for this free edition of the Storymakers Institute. If you'd like to hear the full and extended episode, all you need to do is head to our website to become a paid subscriber, thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com.